The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast episode 302 for the week of Sunday, January 9th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and look at this, the entire team is here and that includes Gene McCulka. Hey Gene, how are you? Good evening, Sawyer. How are you doing today? I'm hanging in there. Thanks, Gene. That also includes Mark Ratterman. Hey, Mark. We're going to need a traffic cop to keep us from running into each other. I know, not used to this many people on the road. Welcome as well, Gina Hurley. (laughs) Hi, Sawyer. How are you? I'm all right. And this show is not edited and stitched together over two nights. This is actually one night of recording once again. Boy, it's good to be back. And let's continue with some news that is actually very common for the last couple of episodes. And that is, surprise, surprise, Discovery's STS-133 launch was once again delayed. Till when, there's, it is estimated that it will be towards the end of February. However, no exact date has been announced. Now, what kind of repercussions do you think this is going to have, and why is this happening? What do we know about it? Well, back on November 5th, again, it wasn't just uh, our, it was our good friend, the, uh, the GUP, or the GUCP, that gave us the problems. Um, but uh, upon closer inspection, uh, once, once the scrub had occurred, uh, the uh, cameras at the pad noticed that there was a section of foam that was indeed cracked, and that was due to uh, the fact that internally under the foam, one of these stringers had just sort of become loose and popped. Um, well, it looks like there are now about uh, uh, plans to modify um, 32 additional stringers. Uh, with uh, what NASA is calling radius blocks, which uh, will provide structural support in the area. Uh, so there's still a lot of work to do. Um, I'm I know that uh, you know it's, you know that the, the 27th is sort of a um, a uh, how could I put this a you know let's give it a shot date. That's not really written in stone. I don't know if we're actually going to make that date because it looks like, uh, by all accounts, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, so we'll we'll just keep our fingers crossed and then see what happens. So when do you think this is actually going to go? If it's going to be, you know keep getting pushed back, do you think we're looking at March or do you think we're looking at dis- at Endeavor's current slot of April? What do you think? Just you know a prediction. I don't think we're going to. You know, again, this is. Um, I'm looking at it from from a standpoint of, of how much work that needs to be done, and I'm I'm hoping that they are able to make the February date, but I don't know. I I just have a 
have a gut feeling that this might be might spill over in, into April, and uh, we might see SDS-133 launch then. I know there is, uh, you know, some additional work that has to be done. They're going to make sure the thing, you know, they're going to X-ray the thing, make sure it's it's in good shape. But uh, there's a crud load of work there, and I think uh, uh, they're going to make sure that this this tank is in in tip-top shape before they go ahead and and roll Discovery back out to uh, to the pad again. I believe uh, Monday um, there's a, a meeting this coming Monday or tomorrow, uh, as we record this. Um, to review the uh, the progress to date and uh, come up with a, a plan coming forward. Um, there are, you know, uh, there's the possibility of additional modifications that might need to be made. So again, there's a lot of work to do in a couple of months, and I, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic that they'll get it done. But uh, you know, again, I've, who knows. Do I get to put my uh, grouchy cap on for a minute? Have fun, Oscar the Grouch. No, I'm going to be the Grouch. I'm going to apologize right now in advance to everybody that loves the shuttle. I apologize. But here we go. Why, after 30 years, are we now discovering a brand new problem that affects this tank that requires that the remaining tanks in the inventory be extensively checked? You know, this is one of the reasons that the people who say the shuttle needs to stop flying are 100% right. You can't you can't have a space program on something that is is constantly fighting the the technology that it depends on, the structure that it depends on. We we got to have something better and I'll contrast this and I know it's totally different, but uh, SpaceX with their Falcon 9, they had a problem with I believe it was the second stage engine, they had a crack in the nozzle. They flew a guy from the West Coast to Kennedy. He went up there. He took a chunk out of the nozzle. They did the analysis, and NASA said, you know, SpaceX did the analysis on the trouble, the repair, and they proved the margins that were still there for flight, that they hadn't compromised the um, the, the the performance of the rocket any, and they went ahead and launched within 24 hours. And contrast that to, well, let's see, we're going to launch STS-133 on November 1st. No Make that the third. No, make that the fourth. No, make that the fifth. Uh, excuse me, maybe it'll be beginning of December, middle of December. Maybe we'll make it by the end of the year. No, now we're looking at, and that goes on and on and on. So I know that they're going to do an excellent job, and when 133 is ready to fly, that it's going to fly and it's going to perform magnificently, and that there's going to be a lot of people that have the, the justifiably right to be incredibly proud of what they do. But uh, this is way too much resources, way too much expense, and way too much trouble. We, you know, spaceflight is is complex, but good grief, it can't be this complex every single mission. Over. <laughs> this is what's so great about talking space, how you can just get on it and voice your opinion, whatever it may be, whether people agree or disagree. I appreciate having a voice, and uh, and I'm I'm pro shuttle. I want to see this fly absolutely, and it's a crying shame that it's so tough, but that's the way it is. And there are implications to to all of these schedule slips too. Right, and not just to NASA vehicles because life would be easy if NASA was the only one that was launching anything. 
But then you've got some other space agencies, such as the European Space Agency, ESA, and Japan's JAXA, because they have spacecraft that are trying to launch the International Space Station as well, on top of the shuttle, and that's going to affect their timeline as well, right? Yeah, it looks like uh, they're going to have to do some juggling around. I know that the uh, um, uh, ATV, or ATV-2, um, was scheduled to launch uh, during, um, I guess, the end of February. Uh, they may have to go ahead and, and juggle that around. Um, I know that it was um, uh, that the ATV-2 was due to dock um, on uh, February 23rd. Um, they may have to push it to February 23rd, I'm sorry, according to a, an article that I'm looking at here from nasaspaceflight.com. Uh, that was dated uh, January 7th. Um, so uh, they may have to adjust the, uh, the, the date that uh, the ATV shows up. Um, and I believe the uh, JAXA, uh, or the Japanese Space Agency, also has one of their tugs uh, to show up at the, uh, the International Space Station as well, the, uh, the HTV. Uh, that is also a, um, a rather complicated um, mission from a robotics perspective. Uh, so, you know, this, we're going to have to take a look and see what, uh, you know, what we can do to, to accommodate, um, their schedules plus, plus accommodate the arrival of discovery because each one of these things is a station supply, you know, is a space station resupply mission. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have to go ahead and make, make some concessions along the line. And, and unfortunately the sequence of the flights is something that, uh, there's not as much flexibility as you would think because some of the spares that uh, 133 is to carry up require uh, – they're required to be there prior to uh, – I forget if it's the – H. I think it's the HTV that's uh, got the rotary flex coupler. Didn't we talk about that on a previous show that uh, a major spare was being shipped to Japan that was going to go up on HTV? Yeah, I, th I think you're right on that, Mark. Yeah, and so the uh, some of the hardware on 133 has to be there first for the spares that are going to fly on HTV to have a place to call home once they arrive. So it's complicated, and it has to happen to some extent in a, in a certain sequence. And uh, it's certainly, if you were the ESA and, and NASA came to you and said, we'd like for you to take your, uh, your plan – launch slash rendezvous time frame and squeeze it a little bit and instead of having any uh, extra days in orbit for docking we'd like you to squeeze it down and we want you to launch on your first attempt <laughs> we don't want you to use those extra three days in your window because uh, we want you to be there so that we can jump up as soon as we can with 133 and so you know how how does the negotiations take place between space agencies uh, you know, everybody's got to do the job and do it perfectly. And uh, the, the pressure of, of schedules and negotiation is a pressure that, uh, you know, the engineers, the managers, the people that are launching the rockets would rather not have, I'm sure. And that's where the whole debate on man versus unmanned spaceflight comes in, and that's a whole other story. So I think with that, we can continue on in our quest. Agreed? Let's move on. Righto. All right. 
let's extend outward from low Earth orbit and let's head to the moon. How's that? It turns out that the moon's core is a lot more like Earth than we thought. Headline from NASA press release says that NASA research team reveals that the moon has an Earth-like core. Yeah, exactly. Is that a surprise or what? <laughs> Literally, I, I never would have thought that it would be similar. I mean, when you do think about it, though, the original theory is that something about the size of Mars came, hit into the Earth when it was young and molten, and this piece came around and started orbiting. So when you think about it, it does kind of make sense, since it's believed that the moon is actually just a part of the Earth. But at the same time, it is surprising. I just thought, you know, you'd think it would just be a little ball in the middle, and that's it. Not an entire solid inner core and a fluid outer core and a mantle and everything. Yeah, and they're, they're talking a solid iron-rich inner core with a radius of 150 miles. And uh, total surprise. I always thought of the moon as being just a big chunk of solid rock that was dead, and that was it. The interesting thing, part of, the interesting part of this thing, I'm sorry, is uh, the source of the discovery. Um, this was uh, made, uh, I believe, uh, by data that was acquired by an Apollo experiment uh, called the Apollo Passive Seismic experiment, uh, which consisted of about uh, uh, four seismometers that were deployed uh, between, uh, of course, between the, uh, the years 1969 and 1972, uh, when the Apollo missions were, were flying. Um, and these seismometers were active through 1977, and they were busily acquiring data until uh, it was decided, due to uh, funding, to turn off the uh, uh, all of the Apollo uh, experiment packages on the moon. Of course, the which, one exception to that being Apollo 11's, which broke down after a few weeks. <laughs> right, right. So, um, you know, to me, to me, it's it's kind of sort of taking old data and and trying to teach it some new tricks, and or or to read old data and find out what it's trying to tell us exactly. And I thought it was kind of interesting that. This was this. All of this information was acquired back back in the mid 70s. I had a conversation on Twitter with a gentleman who's been on our show, Brian Shiro, B R I A N S H I R O, and uh, I asked him because he is a uh, geologist, seismologist. He works at the Tsunami Warning Center, and uh, I asked him. I said, "Is this news about the lunar core, or is is this big or just not commonly known?" And he answered back. He said he hadn't seen it. And this was the a few hours after the press release. He said he was going to read up on the paper. If it's big news and we can say something definite about it, you know that would that would be uh, that would be the key. And the next day he answered back. And I told him I'd like to hear his thoughts about it, and hoping that there was some in-depth material. And he says, "Hi, I jotted down my impressions on the lunar core story in a blog post here." And he gave me the link to his blog post, and that's uh, some of the material that we're referring to. But uh, he talks about the methods of taking this data and pulling out essentially noise to where they were able to see things that, if they had had a more elaborate uh, network of seismometers, that they would have found. But the network being limited to where the Apollo site landing sites were and, uh, and noise that was picked up by these detectors, uh, they found a way 
that uh, he describes in a way that at least I understood as to how they got the data that give them the measurements and the um, the the determinations of what the core is like. And I think it's really impressive to to do all that with data that's that's that old and pretty much nearly forgotten. I agree. And is it just me or did I smell a segue with uh, what we've been talking about when it comes to looking at old data to find new results? Does anybody else smell that or is it just me? Uh, I'm, I'm starting to smell something burning myself, so go ahead. Just making sure that's not me because as we move on to our next topic, it happens to be about a little further out in the solar system, Mars. It turns out that the Mars Viking landers back in the 1970s, which landed on the red planet turns out they actually found organics now organics are the things that are necessary to form life now once again restating this they just found the organics they did not actually find life but they did find everything that would be necessary to form life right on that landing site back in the 1970s and they're discovering that now pretty amazing huh yeah, what kind of sort of prompted this was, uh, and I'm, I'm looking at a, an article from the uh, Discovery News website uh, by Irene Klotz here, dated January 4th. Um, it, what the the new study kind of kind of was was prompted up by uh, by the August uh, 2008 uh, discovery uh, that uh, Mars Phoenix had uh, had made of uh, perchlorates. These are kind of you know. Powerful, what what Irene describes in her article is powerful oxygen-busting compounds. Um, uh, so they went ahead and kind of sort of repeated an experiment uh, that Viking had carried uh, using uh, uh, enhanced soil from, uh, I believe, and I'm trying to let me read the article here from uh, a, a desert in Chile. Uh, which is considered to be like the driest place on Earth, uh, aside from Antarctica. And uh, uh, so they went ahead and they, they simulated this, and lo and behold, guess what they found? Um, fingerprints of these sort of combusted organics in the soil. So um, as the article had indicated, uh, uh, I believe uh, Chris McKay uh, from uh, NASA Ames had basically said it's... Um, he described it as sort of like a third, like a 30-year-old cold case, you know, just suddenly being solved. But uh, uh, again, as, as you stress, Sawyer, this doesn't mean that there was life there. It just simply means that there is is the building blocks for life um, on Mars, which still, you know, to me means you have to go back and keep doing your homework here. You haven't found microbial fossils. You haven't found anything like that. But you have found the possibility that life may have, ex- you know, that life maybe there or may have existed there at some point in time it kind of makes you wonder what uh, what science could do with a lot of historical data that's out there uh, maybe astronomy maybe pictures uh, pre-hubble including Hubble and other land-based telescopes where they where they look at uh, and and probably do this but uh, that's the first one that comes to mind of, of looking at things that you've already got and looking at it with new technology and software that will allow you to analyze and, and work with large amounts of data. And then having somebody sitting in a cubicle somewhere saying, hey, I wonder if – and uh, 
one of the impacts of this is the article you're referring to, Gene. It said uh, uh, Rafael Navarro-Gonzalez from uh, a university and National Autonomous University in Mexico. He said if NASA had realized there were organics on Mars, there might not have been a 20-year hiatus in sending landers for follow-up studies. Yeah, Mark, talk about opportunities missed. The one big thing that I was reading in another article, though, as well, is that the organics, they might have been easier to discover had the actual lander not, you know, blasted the soil as it landed, as it came down. In doing so, it actually possibly burned away some of the organics. And that could have been one of the reasons why it wasn't originally noted. Yeah, how do you account for that? Uh, as a scientist, that would seem to me to be quite tough. Uh, not being a scientist, it would seem to be tough. Right, you're talking these things have to withstand thousands of degrees of heat being forced down upon them as this thing tries to set it to itself down without destroying itself. Yeah, it, again, I, I think the, the lesson learned, um, and Mark kind of alluded to it, from all of this is that uh, you can go ahead and uh, uh, get new tricks from old data and uh, we can still probably learn a lot from, from the old Apollo data and, and the Viking data. Actually, as a matter of fact, I was just taking a look at the, uh, the whole Galaxy Zoo idea and the whole Zooniverse, as they call it, you know, where you can go and help them you know, study the moon or look at rocks or at uh, or at galaxies, things like that. They actually have one where you can go and look back at old weather patterns back from the days when they just used it from naval ships, and they're actually using that to help compare it to weather patterns today. I sense something going into our show notes. <laughs> I sense that's going in there as well as well as the article that Mark mentioned a little bit earlier in the show with uh, Brian Shiro's blog post. Which, by the way, I have to admit, it is fun. I was playing around with it today. It's called Old Weather. No joke, that's what it's called, Old Weather. I'll have to take a look at that. Alrighty then, I guess with that, that means that we're moving on to our last topic which unfortunately is not a happy story as we head back down to Earth and in fact to the state of Arizona in the United States where one of the United States representatives was actually shot while at a meet and greet event with members of her district. Representative Gabrielle Giffords, who was a Democrat from Arizona, was shot on January 8th, 2011 in the head and her husband happens to be a space shuttle astronaut, in fact, Mark Kelly, who is scheduled to command the STS-134 mission currently slated for April 1st, 2011, which will be the final space shuttle flight of the space shuttle Endeavor and the entire program. It's just such a, a sad story, but the good news is she's currently okay. She's alive and responding to basic commands, but it's just sad uh, it i could only imagine mark kelly's stepbrother as well who's in space right now having to deal with this and it's got to be tough 
Which begs the question, Sawyer, when you have uh, sort of a family conflagration that happens when you're about 200 miles up, what do you do? You know, how, how, how do you handle it? And uh, uh, there are two schools of thought on that. Um, I'll go to the first school of thought, which happened back in 1978. Keep in mind that you did not have uh, the vast amount of communications back then. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have email or anything like that. You just had, you know, the, just the, the two-way radio type thing. Um, this was during the old uh, Salyut 6 uh, days um, of the Salyut space station of, of the old Soviet Union. Um, one of the uh, the cosmonauts, and I'm, I'm quoting here from a, uh, a Cosmic Log um, article on MSNBC on their website, uh, Grigory Grichenko, um, his father had uh, had passed away while he was on orbit, and uh, they decided, or the, the folks on the ground decided not to tell him that his dad had passed away uh, until after he got back, some some two months later, uh, when um, when asked about it and asked if that was the right thing and the right call to make, uh, Grichenko said, uh, you know, it, while it kind of seemed uh, quote inhumane close quote it was probably the right decision uh, and uh, I guess they were talking about the fact that uh, they felt that having this news and then being on orbit and not being able to do anything about it um, was sort of you know it, it would have affected his work uh, contrast to that uh, we had a an incident I guess it was uh Back in, yeah, thank you, Sawyer. Back in uh, 2007, there with uh, astronaut Dan Taney, where his uh, his mother uh, was uh, killed in a traffic an- accident, and Taney was told immediately, and um, he uh, you know issued a statement and and carried on. I believe there was still some sort of closed circuit uh, television type thing from uh, where he could you know view the the funeral and, and say some words if he wanted to. Um, but it was about another two months before uh, 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 Dan Taney returned to Earth, but uh, he was told immediately. So that kind of sort of begs the question, what is what is really the uh, the right path to take? First, you know, um, I will say even before we, 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 we start on this, um, my heartfelt, you know, uh, thoughts and prayers go to the family of Gabrielle Giffords and, uh, and uh, to... Uh, to Mark Kelly and to everyone that was affected by this uh, on Saturday, uh, Gabrielle Giffords is is probably uh, a, is, is probably one of the biggest champions for uh, for NASA and for spaceflight, and, uh, and was a, was a huge proponent of the Constellation program and fought exceptionally hard to keep it alive um, in Congress, and uh, was uh, was very very instrumental during uh, the. Um, Human spaceflight hearings um, a few summers ago. Uh, she uh, she's just a huge champion for uh, for spaceflight, and I, I wish her you know the, the very swift recovery. But again, uh, coming back to uh, the question, I, I I ask you know what what do you do when you have uh, you know an, an astronaut on orbit? Um, do you tell them immediately, or do you do you, do you wait a while? Well, I don't think in in today's world that you have a question anymore. I mean, these astronauts have access to email, Twitter, whatever, and 
you know, they're going to find out whether Mission Control is the one to tell them or not. Well, Scott Kelly's an exceptional astronaut. He's a he's a naval aviator. Uh, he's done carrier landings, I'm sure. He's been trained in the school of warfare to know that bad things happen to people you care about, and you have to just pick yourself up and go on. And uh, being in command of the space station right now, uh, I'm sure he's had to do that. I'm sure he's an incredibly disciplined military background astronaut that has the ability to turn a switch on and off. But he is human, and my guess is that his crewmates are probably close enough to him that they're probably a, a great source of support right now. Because uh, when you hear anything in the news about the quote-unquote NASA family, I am sure the the fellow astronauts that he's in or on orbit with are you know, are are his comfort zone right now. And I'm sure they've probably stepped up to the plate and made sure that he's okay, would be my guess. And he's probably been in communication with his brother and family. So uh, that must be comforting and not being so isolated like you would be, um, you know, a couple decades ago. Right. He was following the events as they unfolded uh, via the internet access that he had up there. And on top of that, also, they have the IP phone or the video phone now, which they can use. They also have regular phones they can call and get in contact with. So it's a different situation. Plus, when you compare what happened in 1978 to the Dantani incident in 2007, there's a major difference. One of them still had a month or so on orbit. The other only had a week or so left on orbit with, until the shuttle launch was delayed, but... D'Antoni was scheduled to go down that week anyway, so there's a little bit of a difference in time there. So I wonder if that makes a difference as well. So again, again, I guess the uh, the fact that uh, we have such a, a variety of communications, as uh, you know, Gina, you pointed out, uh, we have the internet, we have IP phones, we have uh, all kinds of things. You, you're, the best policy is to go ahead and let the folks know that uh, you know we've got an issue here, and uh, to go ahead and try to deliver the best support we can. Just a, a comment from kind of a from our own perspective. Uh, a lot of the people that we have all talked to consider we and, and I think many others consider themselves to be part of the NASA family by our close connections with some of the tweet ups and with uh, getting to know people that um, that work at NASA, work for the contractors that support NASA, and I think we consider. Congresswoman Giffords to be part of the family and you know it touches home there in that respect um, as far as the question of could there be a change in uh, Commander Kelly flying 134 uh, I think that's something that will settle out in the next few weeks um, I'm sure there's that much time in their in their training schedule with with current current expectations for 134's launch that uh that they can absorb without any impact, uh, his being with his wife by his wife's side for a period of time, and I think it'll it'll prove out. Um, I I may well expect to see him fly, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if he uh, steps aside. And, and of course, that depends on. We don't hear much about alternate crews, so don't really know what a uh, backup crew member. Uh, you know where they're at with with being able to step in. 
what they would do is they would probably take the commander of 135 and assign him to 134. It kind of depends. There's a lot of science with AMS as part of their payload, so I don't know that that would necessarily be in effect because two of the crew are closely involved with, with AMS and the integration of that on board the ISS. So, um, you know, the, the commander may be um, replaced in that respect, but I don't even like to talk about that. Right, we'll let everything settle down and in the meantime just hope for the best for Representative Giffords and Mark Kelly and all of their family and everyone that was associated with this sad event and keep them in our thoughts and wish them all the best from the Talking Space team. Amen. Amen to that. And on that note, I believe that brings this episode to a close. So once again, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, as always. It's uh, it's always fun to be here. That's for sure. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Glad to be here as well. Good to hear uh, all four of us together. Oh, it's so nice. Thank you as well, Gina Hurley. You're welcome, Sawyer. And just once again, our thoughts and wishes go out to the families affected all the families affected by the senseless, violent shooting that occurred um, in Arizona this weekend. Definitely. All of our thoughts are with them. But for now, we thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.